Look at that. Nice, strong welcome from Lungi. Everybody else is still adjusting to daylight saving. Welcome online as well, those joining us, including my lovely wife, who's not feeling great this morning. So, welcome. Uh, as Patrick mentioned, we're actually right at the end of our series in book of Colossians. Next week is the final message, so this is kind of the second last message of the series. And it's a passage of scripture that you might be tempted, if you read it, to kind of kind of flick through and skip over because it's a list of ten names that Paul wants to bring to attention. But how beautiful that this is the living, breathing word of God that always has something to encourage us in. And there's some real grace in this passage from the Lord for us this morning. So why don't you open up your Bibles, if you have them there, it's going to be up on the screen, if not, uh, to Colossians chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 7 through to 15. This is God's word to us this morning, church. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And to Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Would you join with me in praying? Lord God, we want to thank you this morning as we gather around your word. And Lord, we want to thank you that you're a gracious and a merciful God who speaks to us constantly. Thank you, Lord, for the way in which even in unlikely places, you speak words of grace. And Lord, so we just want to pray as your people, as we gather around these words this morning, Lord, help us, Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of you that know Charlotte and I well, will know that one of the things that I love to do, one of my favorite things is actually to encourage her. Uh, I love pointing out where God is working in her life. 
Uh, I love telling her how much I love her and how much I appreciate her. I love telling her over and over again where I see God working in her life. And some people actually, if they heard the things that I say to Charlotte, might, you know, roll their eyes a little bit, might laugh, might tell me it's a little bit cheesy. Uh, But I love it and I love to do it. And she's such a special lady that I actually find it incredibly easy to do. But here's something that most people that know me wouldn't know, and that is that this practice of mine is not something that I just suddenly picked up or decided to do in and of myself. I had it actually modeled to me for decades and decades and decades by someone else, and that someone else is my dad. My dad, for those that know him or don't know him, is a wonderful encourager. And I watched him for 35 years in good times and incredibly difficult times, constantly encouraging my mum. Constant words of affirmation, constant expressions of his love and encouragement towards her. And so my dad's example has had such a profound effect on him, on me, that what I watched him model to me became my expectation of how a husband should treat his wife. Here's a truth that we don't like to talk about so much as Christians in the West, and that is that our lives are actually shaped profoundly by the example of others. You know, our individualistic culture puts an emphasis on my personal choice, my decision-making, and it influences the way we often talk about our faith. We often share our testimonies this way. We focus on the things that we have done in coming to know Christ. But all of us, in various ways, have been profoundly shaped by the influence of others. You know, the evidence of this is in that the vast majority of people come to Christ in and through who? Family and friends. You see, the risen Christ working in the lives of others around us overflows into our very own lives. We even see this in the Bible itself. Paul, talking to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, describes how the faith of his grandmother, Lois, overflowed into his mother, Eunice, and into the life of Timothy himself. Others have a profound impact in shaping who we are. But it's also true that we can become blinded to where God is working, where the risen Christ is working in the midst of our community. And we can become focused on things we're disappointed in, complaints, areas we're being offended, and areas in need of change. More than that, we can become so familiar with the Christ-like example of others that we actually assume that's always been the case. But here's the truth. Here's a wonderful truth. That today Paul is slowing us down to pause and reflect upon the work of the risen Christ in the lives of others. See, Paul has been explaining throughout his letter to the Colossians that Christ is supreme in all things, that he's their maker, that he's their redeemer, that he's the sustainer of everything, that he's reigning in heaven at the right hand of God, that he's given them new spiritual life, and that he's calling them to live in submission to him. 
Paul has then, in his letter, moved to unpack the implications of the supremacy of Christ for a variety of different areas in the Christian community. That the Jesus community is to be knit together in love. That the community is to be marked by thankfulness. That marriages are to reflect Christ in the church. That children are to be obedient. That parents are not to provoke their kids to anger. That workers and bosses are both together work as though they're working for Christ. And last week we saw how we're meant to be a community that is joining Christ together in his mission to seek and save the lost. But as Paul comes to the end of his letter to the Colossians, he pauses. He pauses to highlight the examples of 10 members of the Christian community serving in Paul's ministry team and in and around Colossae. And in highlighting the examples, he draws our attention to the various ways in which the risen Lord Jesus is working within their community. Now, we don't have time this morning, this afternoon, to examine every one of these 10 people that he mentions. But what we're going to do is to pause to examine four different examples that Paul wished to highlight to the Colossians. Four examples for us this morning. If you're taking notes, um, I've entitled this message, The Supremacy of Christ in Our Midst. And really, I've got one hope for us as we unpack these four different examples. And that is that as we see the work of Christ in the lives of these different examples, we'd also see the work of the risen Christ in our midst right here in this community. So we're going to be looking at these examples, seeing where Christ is working. But the heart is that we'd also not just see there, but to see here as well. Let's dive into point number one and the first example for us this morning, which is an example of faithfulness. You see, the Bible is filled with many wonderful examples of faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to God. You're aware of a lot of them. Big names like Abraham and Moses, people like the Apostle Paul, Barnabas, Peter, John, James, Stephen, so many names. But for every one of these well-known examples of faithfulness, there's countless others that we easily overlook. Those who behind the scenes or without much acclaim faithfully serve the forward progress of the gospel. Those unlikely to receive much praise or attention in the world or in the church, but whose example is worth our close examination. And one such poorly known example that we come to this morning is Tychicus, a man that for many of us we've probably never even heard of and yet incredibly significant in the forward progress of the gospel. Read with me again verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. See, Tychicus was Paul's most trusted letter bearer. We first read about Tychicus in Acts uh, chapter 20, where he accompanies Paul on his third missionary journey from Corinth to Macedonia. Tychicus is described as being from the province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey and Greece, somewhere in between there. Its capital was the city of Ephesus. 
And the fact that Tychicus is often mentioned in association with Ephesus suggests that he was likely converted during Paul's ministry there. Tychicus appears several times in the final period of Paul's ministry. In Paul's letter to Titus, he sends him uh, Tychicus to Crete, where Titus is. Paul in Ephesians sends Tychicus similarly to Ephesus to encourage them. In our passage, he sends Tychicus carrying the letter to the Colossians and to Philemon. And in Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy, he sends Tychicus again to Ephesus. You see, Tychicus was an incredible example of faithfulness to Christ. Tychicus had risked his life over and over again for the gospel. I mean, just consider all the places we know he traveled to. Crete, Ephesus, Rome, Colossae, Corinth, Macedonia, just to name the ones we're aware of. You know, if you're thinking about these examples, you might not think what a big deal it is, but travel in the first century is not like travel today. It's not like you just rock up at the airport with your little carry cat, you know, thing, you book your ticket online and check in and fly off and someone greets you at the airport. That's not what this was like. This is risking your life at sea, on road, from bandits, from the elements, each and every time, in lands hostile to the gospel. You still might think, well, that's not that big a deal, though, right? It's a pretty simple job. Like, you're just carrying the letters to different people. But the role was actually far more significant than that as well. Read again with me verse 8, what Paul says. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. You can imagine the Christians in Colossae who have heard about Paul and they're incredibly concerned about him and his ministry team in prison in Rome. And they've probably got questions like, how's he going? And what's his health like? And how's the gospel going forward in Rome? And what's the church like in Rome? You see, Tychicus was Paul's ministry team's official representative. He was going to explain to them their condition. He was going to explain to them about how God was using Paul's imprisonment for the forward progress of the gospel. It's also likely that Tychicus was responsible for publicly reading the letter and providing the authoritative commentary on the letter. Such was the role of letter carriers in the first century. See, Tychicus was a man that Paul had incredible trust in because he represented him everywhere he was sent. Read again with me, verse 7 says the following. He says this, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant. A beloved brother, a loved part of the family of God. A faithful minister, literally a faithful servant. Someone who faithfully serves the Lord Jesus. And a fellow servant, literally fellow slave in the Lord. You know, it's rendered servant, often this word in our Bible, because when we think about slavery, we think about New World slavery, the horrible atrocities that were committed, the hugely cruel regime of slavery that took people based on race, that kidnapped people and put them in bondage for lifelong slavery. Now, in the Roman Empire, slavery, as we've heard about uh, just a few weeks in the message Simon gave, um, did not largely involve kidnapping. Uh, It wasn't based on race. And it normally wasn't lifelong either. That aside, a slave was someone who had absolutely no rights whatsoever. A slave was someone who was absolutely owned by someone else. You were their property. And the purpose of a slave was to live to do their master's will with no other options whatsoever. 
And Paul says, like me, Tychicus is a slave of Jesus Christ. See, the point is that the risen Lord Jesus had done such an amazing work in Tychicus' life that Paul instinctively trusted him. Trusted him to carry his letters. Trusted him to represent him to others as well. Here's a question I've been thinking about this week for myself and for us. Are you someone like that? Are you someone like Tychicus who others can just instinctively trust? Trust to do what you've said. Faithful to do what is asked of you. Someone whose word counts. Like when you say yes, you mean yes, not yes until I get a better offer. And when you say no, you mean no. Such a challenge that for people that are millennials like me and younger. Are you all in when it comes to Jesus? Do people instinctively trust you to faithfully represent Christ and others as well? You know, the truth is there are actually many Tychicuses in our church community. And I was just thinking about it just this week, just just thinking about a few of them. I mean, I'm thinking about Coyote and Christina Williams. I think they're serving on kids today out there. I think I saw some T-shirts. Ten years faithfully serving in this church with very little acclaim through thick and thin, year after year after year. Simon and Michelle Walker, who, I mean, their deep love for Jesus and desire to lay it all on the line has meant that they're willing to sacrifice long service leave for the sake of serving you guys and this church community. Just a few examples of the kind of faithfulness that comes from the risen Christ working in our midst. And that's our first example, an example of faithfulness. But not just that, an example of redemption as well that we see. You see, Tychicus had another role in this trip that we haven't really talked about yet. And this role was actually quite sensitive. Tychicus was entrusted to deliver a letter to a Colossian slave owner and member of the church named Philemon. And we read the following in verse 9. It says this, And with him, that's Tychicus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Onesimus in Greek means useful. And actually at the time, it was a really common name for slaves. Onesimus. And we know from Paul's letter to Philemon that Philemon was Onesimus' master and that Onesimus had left Philemon and somehow crossed paths with Paul in a Roman prison. We're not told exactly why Onesimus left Philemon, but there's clearly some tension between them and the possibility that Onesimus had in fact stolen from Philemon and that there was some debt still being owed to his master. And through his encounter with Paul, Onesimus had actually received Christ as his Lord and Savior and had been completely transformed. So much that Paul writes to Philemon these beautiful words in Philemon verse 10. He says, writing to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed Onesimus, useful to you and to me. Listen to this. I'm sending him back to you. Sending my very heart. Isn't that beautiful? 
the way Paul loves Onesimus. You see, since, Paul, since Onesimus had come to faith in Christ, he'd become incredibly dear to the Apostle Paul. He's like my child in the faith. Before he was useless to you, now he's Onesimus, useful to us both. I'm sending my very heart to you, says Paul. He loved this man so dearly. Paul goes on to say that he would have loved to have Onesimus stay with him to continue to minister him in prison in Rome, but he'd sent him to Philemon in order to ask his permission first. In verse 15, Paul says the following to Philemon. He says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me that you might have him back as far more than a slave, says Paul, but as a beloved brother. Isn't that beautiful, the redeeming power of the Lord Jesus? Paul goes on, I want you to treat Onesimus as if you would, in the same way as you would treat me, the Apostle Paul. Isn't that remarkable that Paul would write the following of a slave? You know, Onesimus is an amazing example of the redemptive power of the risen Lord. This lowly runaway slave, completely transformed by Christ, treated as an equal in the community of Christ, so knit together, so deeply in love with the body of Christ that it could be said of him, my child, my heart, says the Apostle Paul. You know, you can have nothing in common with someone else in terms of this world, but share Christ and have the deepest of friendships because of the power of the Lord Jesus. You know, Paul had said earlier in Colossians 3.11, he said, here, speaking of in the, the church of Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, no circumcised and uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Onesimus is a living example of the redemptive power of the risen Lord, that a slave could be adopted into his family. And yet, as I think about this local church, there are so many examples of the redemptive power of God at work in this community as well. I mean, every one of us is an example of his redemptive power. But I was thinking this week, even just recent cases, like Celia Tan, or like uh, Elias Williams, or Nick in India, or Uncle Stephen and Auntie Jeanette as well. I was thinking this week about a, a guy that most of us would know, Nick Gordon, and what a beloved brother he is. But I was thinking six years ago, I remember, like, you couldn't even meet the guy. He was here, he would say, to tick that box to make uh, Yvonne happy, but had no interest in following Jesus or being part of the Christian community. And so you could never meet him because he'd come late, sit at the back, and leave, like, straight away, make a beeline for the door. And so you never had a chance to, to talk to him. And yet Christ has transformed his life so much so that he's one of our gospel community leaders and one of my closest friends. It's the transformative, redemptive power of the risen Lord Jesus. And Onesimus is an example of that power, the redemptive power of our Lord. 
And that's point number two, an example of redemption. But not just that, not just an example of faithfulness in Tychicus, not just an example of redemption in Onesimus, but also an example of loving unity, uh, which is point three. You see, Onesimus' example isn't just an example of the redemptive power of the risen Lord to create new spiritual life in people, but also of the unity that the gospel brings as well. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says this, he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity. See, the gospel not only removes the divides of prejudice, of race, of social status, of religious background, it creates this radical, loving unity. But Onesimus isn't the only example of the way the gospel reconciles people. Keep reading in verse 10 of our passage. It says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. You know, in this section, Paul sends uh, the greetings of six different Christians who had been serving alongside him and were known to the Colossians. They must have already had some sort of relationship. The first is Aristarchus of Thessalonica. Uh, We learn about Aristarchus from Acts. He traveled extensively with Paul, and he was with Paul during the riots in Ephesus and now is in prison alongside Paul. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, also known as John Mark, and Jesus called Justice, who's mentioned only here in the New Testament. But what these three have in common is that they're all ones who are literally from the circumcision, says Paul. Perhaps better, these are all Christians of Jewish background. Paul's ministry team, you see, had a mix of Jews and Gentiles serving side by side. See, the wonderful truth is that Paul's ministry team itself displayed the loving unity that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, just as Paul had said, there's no longer to be division between God's people based on ethnicity, no longer Jew or Gentile, or based on religious observance, no longer circumcised or uncircumcised. His team, his ministry team, was a living example of this. Though the majority of Paul's team were actually uh, under house arrest were actually Gentiles, Paul, with his great heart for his own people, is greatly comforted by these three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justus. Even a momentary examination of our church, however, and you can't help but see the way in which the risen Lord Jesus had bound people together here as well. I was thinking about just this week. We've got English folks and South Africans and Ghanaians and Singaporean and German, Nigerian, Welsh, Malaysian, Chinese, Korean, Colombian, Venezuelan, just to name a few. All together as one, but not just different ethnicities. We've got different people from different seasons here as well. We've got children and grandparents and youth and young adults and middle-aged people, married people, single people, all together as one. But that's not the only example of the loving unity within Paul's team. There's more examples as well. Read with me again that verse 10. It says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. This is Mark. Mark, who was from a Jewish background, and from Jerusalem. 
we probably first learn about John Mark actually from Luke, who, by the way, also sends his greetings from prison, uh, in Acts when Mark or John Mark's mother holds a believers' meeting in her home in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. After Paul and Barnabas's trip to Jerusalem to relieve the saints, they actually brought Mark from Jerusalem to Antioch. Mark then joined Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey, but deserted them in Pamphylia. At the time of their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to bring his cousin Mark and presumably give this young man a second chance. But Paul sharply disagreed. And they had such a heated argument at the time that Barnabas and Mark together went to Cyprus and Paul takes Silas to carry on with his second missionary journey. Now, by the time we read this, it's probably been about 12 years that have passed since that infamous event. And now Mark is a changed man. You see, John Mark had come to be an incredible blessing to many, many different Christians, including the Apostle Peter, who describes him as my son in 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Yeah, this is Mark who probably goes on to write the Gospel of Mark based on the testimony of his beloved friend now, the Apostle Peter. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul instructs Timothy to bring Mark to him in prison because Mark is very useful to him. You see, the risen Lord Jesus had over the years grown Mark in maturity. But also the risen Lord Jesus over the years had possibly softened the Apostle Paul in his old age as well and reconciled them and brought them together. You know, I wonder if as you consider your brothers and sisters in Christ within our community, you realize perhaps this morning that you're not at peace with someone. You know, maybe you've wronged them. Maybe they've wronged you. Maybe you've both wronged each other. Well, this morning's a wonderful encouragement because the situation that you're in is incredibly hopeful because Christ is risen, Christ is reigning, and he is present in the midst of this community. Just as he reconciled Paul and Mark, he is able to reconcile you. You know, Paul knew this firsthand. He was completely cut off from the people of God. He was persecuting and attempting to kill them. But the risen Lord appeared to him and changed his life forever. You know, the apostle Peter knew this firsthand. In Peter's darkest hour, he betrayed his Lord Jesus three times. And yet the risen Lord appeared to him and forgave him three times as well and changed his life forever. You see, it's not just Tychus's example of faithful service. It's not just Onesimus's example of redemption or the examples of loving unity within Paul's team, but also the example of the reconciliation of Paul and Mark as well. But not just that. Finally, our last example, point number four, an example of sacrificial service. Why don't you read with me verse 12. It says the following. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature 
and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. You know, the first of the Gentile members of Paul's team that send their greetings to those in Colossae is none other than Epaphras. In Philemon verse 23, we learn that Epaphras is also imprisoned in Rome with Paul. You see, Epaphras is from Colossae and the founder of the church, and it's Epaphras who had informed Paul of the situation in his hometown. It's also likely that Epaphras had planted churches throughout the Lycus Valley in the neighboring cities of Hierapolis and Laodicea as well. It turns out Epaphras appears to be quite the evangelist. And Paul reserves his highest praise in the letter to the Colossians for Epaphras. Paul describes him in verse 12 as a slave of Christ Jesus. And now this is different from the way he describes Tychicus, who he describes as a fellow slave in in the Lord. See, Paul ever only ever uses this title of himself and one other person, and that is his beloved disciple Timothy. Epaphras is the third and only other person he ever describes in this way. Now, as mentioned before, a slave was someone with no rights, someone who was owned by their master. Their sole purpose in life was to please their master. And in this sense, Epaphras is the prime example of what Paul had just been talking about in Colossians chapter 3. He says the following in Colossians 3.22. He says, Slaves, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Just as slaves would obey their masters in everything, knowing that they work for the Lord, so does Epaphras. This was a man whose life was marked by sacrificial service to his king. Well, here's a question. What does Epaphras' sacrificial service to Christ look like? Paul describes it this way in verse 12. He says of Epaphras, always struggling on your behalf in prayer. This word for struggling is used to refer to an athletic contest. It means to contend, to struggle, to wrestle. He's always wrestling on your behalf in prayer, says Paul. You know, in verse 2, just before we saw last week, Paul said they're to be steadfast, devoted to prayer. And this is exactly what Epaphras modeled from prison. And what were his prayers? His prayer was that specifically that they stand firm, that they be mature and fully assured of the will of God. You see, Epaphras had been deeply worried about the effect of this false teaching upon the Christians in Colossae. He was so worried that he had informed his fellow prisoner, Paul, in prison. And from prison also, there is Epaphras, struggling, fighting, wrestling, constantly in prayer on their behalf to stand firm in Christ and to believe that all they need is to be found in him. You know, Paul goes on to describe it this way. He says, I can testify in verse 13 that he, Epaphras, he's worked hard for you. You know, that word for work here isn't just the standard word for work. This word here actually refers to hard labor, painful, toilsome work. You know, Paul is saying, Epaphras, he's worked painstakingly for you. 
Now, the picture of Epaphras that Paul wants us to see is a man with this deep care for the Colossians, pouring himself out in sacrificial service. But here's the question I've been thinking about this week. Where did Epaphras learn this? Where did Epaphras learn to serve the Colossians like this? You know, in one sense, Epaphras had learned to follow the example of Paul. I mean, Paul kind of compares their ministries as in almost identical words. I mean, in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, and so from this day, speaking of his own ministry, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. Paul says, we're constantly in prayer for you. Paul says of himself in chapter 1, verse 29, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. In chapter 2, verse uh, verse 1, Paul says of himself, I want you to know, Colossians, how great a struggle I have for you. Paul, in many ways, was the influence on Epaphras' life that led him to be like this. And yet, in a greater sense, Epaphras had learned from the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says the following in John chapter 15, verse 12. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. You know, if you're listening online and you don't know Christ, or you're sitting in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ yet, the message of the gospel is that the maker of everything you see sent his very own son to become a man and live amongst us. And though this be the king of kings He didn't come as other kings in pomp and splendor. But he came as a servant. More, He came as a slave. He came humble. And this king came and he laid down his life on the cross in a once-for-all place-taking death, taking our place for the punishments and wrongs that we deserve punishment for. And the message of the gospel is that simply through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus, you can be redeemed. You can be reconciled back to God more. You can be completely transformed. If you're sitting here or listening online and and you're following the Lord Jesus, God has commenced an unstoppable work in your life to make you like Christ. And as I look upon this church, because of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, I see so many examples of faithful sacrificial service, many Epaphrases in our midst. I was thinking just this week of our brother Yui here, praying for his parents for 20 plus years faithfully that they might come to know Christ. I was thinking of our brother Glenn Jones who serves on every roster known to mankind. I was thinking of Janelle Pierce, who juggles the kids and serving parents in our church week in, week out, with no pay, for years on end, simply because she loves the Lord and loves this church. I'm thinking of Emma and Charlotte and Meg, who look after the kids every single week, so us pastors can be at church all day and care for you guys in three services every Sunday. Many Epaphrases. Sacrificial service for the sake of 
Christ. Your friends, though we don't often like to talk about it, the truth is that so much of our Christian lives has been shaped by the example of others. As the risen Lord Jesus works in and through those in our community, it rubs off on us. We're affected also and we're changed by it. It's also so easy to fail and to see the many ways in which God is working in our midst. So how kind of the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, to pause and highlight examples of how he's been working in the lives of those serving in Colossae through Paul. An example of faithfulness in Tychicus, an example of redemption in Onesimus, an example of loving unity in John Mark and the Jews and Gentiles on his team, an example of sacrificial service in Epaphras. You know, as we close this morning, I just wanted to stop for a brief moment and just consider, okay, how do we apply this message as a church together today? I just want to encourage you with a few brief notes of application. Take some time today. Take some time this week just to pause and thank God for where you see examples of the risen Jesus working in the lives of people in our midst. And where you see an example of faithfulness, I want to encourage you, take some time to encourage that person. Spend some time to write them a note of encouragement. Let them know where you see God working in their life. You don't know how that might powerfully encourage and embolden one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And where you feel particularly encouraged, do everything you can to follow their example. You might like to even invite that person to disciple you. And we have lots of information on our webpage about how you can do that with useful resources. Well, friends, I trust that as we've seen the work of Christ in these various examples, we've also seen the work of Christ in our midst this morning. How kind of the Lord, would you join with me in praying? But God, we just want to thank you as your people this morning. You are faithful and you are good. And we want to thank you that you didn't just die on the cross, but you rose in victory and you're reigning from above. Not just in the pages of a book, but in our everyday lives and in our midst. And Lord, I just want to thank you for the beautiful examples you've drawn our attention to this morning in your word. What a blessing it is to hear of faithfulness, of redemption, of loving unity, Lord, and of sacrificial service. I just pray, Lord, that as we look out on our brothers and sisters in Christ in our community this week, you'd freshly open our eyes to see where you're working, Lord. And help us to remember that you indeed are in our midst, working, building your church, changing each and every one of us in a faithful work that you will bring to completion on that last day. So we thank you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.